Hey, it's Shannon Ballard, the creator and host of Southern Mysteries. This is an independent podcast that's made possible by the support of patrons who help me continue to share stories like you will hear today. I appreciate everyone who supports this show, including our newest members, Jen from Chico, California, Joe from Chattanooga, Tennessee, Brooks from Paddle, Mississippi, Tasha from Gales Ferry, Connecticut, and thanks to those listening and supporting from mysterious locations, Stephanie, Charles, Catherine, and George. As a thanks for joining the show on Patreon, you hear ad-free episodes and the show archive of the first three seasons. You can also join at a level where you have access to a lot of bonus content, like the archives of patron-exclusive podcast and our new patron-exclusive monthly podcast, Audacious, Tales of Scandalous and Shocking Crimes in American History. From secret lovers hidden in attics to a con man who twice sold the Eiffel Tower and a controversial doctor who played a significant role in body snatching for medical research. There are two options for joining in on Patreon, and it's easy to opt in and out. You can check it out for yourself and start listening to episodes you haven't heard before at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. In 1861, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling in a court battle that began in 1834. Justice James Moore Wayne wrote this of the ruling. When hereafter some distinguished American lawyer retires from his practice to write the history of his country's jurisprudence, this case will be registered by him as the most remarkable in the records of its courts. Dubbed the Great Gaines Case, the court battle continued beyond the 1860s until the case was finally resolved in 1891. The nearly six-decade-long court battle involved a wealthy Louisiana politician and merchant, a hidden marriage and child, and a vast fortune, including property along Canal Street in the heart of New Orleans' business district. The case appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court 17 times and remains one of the longest court battles in U.S. history. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of Myra Clark and the Great Gaines case. The Great Gaines case began in New York in 1830 when a young woman learned she was not the biological daughter of Colonel Samuel Davis and his wife Marion, the only parents she had ever known. Soon after her wedding day, the Davis's 25-year-old daughter Myra came across letters from her father. The letters were written to Daniel Clark in Louisiana, and there was mention of Daniel Clark's daughter, Myra. Shocked and confused, Myra confronted Colonel Davis, who confessed he was her adoptive father. Her biological parents were Daniel Clark and a Frenchwoman, Zulim Carrier. Clark died in 1813, but Zulim was still alive when Myra learned the truth. With the help of her first husband, William Whitney, 
Myra learned about the circumstances surrounding her biological parents and their secret marriage. Daniel Clark was born in Ireland in 1766. Around 1786, he traveled to the then Spanish province of New Orleans to join his uncle's land speculation and banking business. Daniel Clark quickly became a successful merchant because he was able to speak French and Spanish and had a knack for negotiating business deals. In 1803, Louisiana reverted to the French, who sold it to the United States 20 days later in the Louisiana Purchase. During that 20-day period, Daniel Clark sent valuable information to Washington about the economy in the region and the attitude of French and Spanish officials. By 1805, Clark began buying tracts of homeless lands on high grounds along the Mississippi River and introduced a new crop to the region, sugarcane, and along with it, slave trading. After Clark's successful first harvest, he built a sugar mill, which contributed to this area of the Mississippi River having a high density of sugarcane plantations. Daniel Clark became one of the wealthiest and most influential men in the region. Clark was embroiled in scandal in 1806 when he was accused of involvement in former Vice President Aaron Burr's plot to separate the Southwest from the United States. Clark adamantly denied the accusation. Daniel Clark became the first delegate from the territory to the United States House of Representatives, but remained under a cloud of suspicion with the Burr scandal until his death in 1813. Clark was always known as a politician and businessman first. Socially, he lived a bachelor's life, which is why very few people knew Clark secretly married Zulim Carrier, a French Creole socialite. The couple met around 1802 and began what mutual friends called an amorous and illicit affair, which led to their secret marriage later that year. The marriage remained a secret because legally, Zulim was already married, but the legality of that marriage was contested. Zulim married French immigrant Jérôme de Grange in 1796, but by the time she met Clark, Zulim had learned de Grange was already married and had never divorced his previous wife. Because her first marriage was bigamous, Zulim believed she could legally enter into another marriage when she met Daniel Clark. But Clark had political aspirations, and the complicated status of their relationship meant he would never officially announce his marriage to Zulim. The couple lived in separate homes in New Orleans, and Daniel Clark's friends assumed Zulim was his mistress. The couple welcomed their only child, Myra, in 1806. Around the time Myra was born, Clark began a relationship with another woman. His business partners told Zulim that Clark planned to propose marriage to this woman who had social status and was not entangled in a complicated relationship. They convinced Zulim to agree to part ways with Daniel Clark. Clark asked his business partners to help destroy documentation of his marriage to Zulim so he would be free of the relationship and convinced Zulim to send their child Myra to live with his close and trusted friends, Colonel Samuel Davis and his wife Marion, who lived in New Orleans before moving north years later. Clark provided financial assistance to the Davises for the care of his daughter, 
but he never publicly acknowledged Myra as his child. When Clark suddenly died in 1813, he left behind substantial property in the heart of New Orleans' business district, including much of Canal Street. He owned several plantations across Louisiana, and along with it, a vast amount of wealth from slave trading. His estate, valued at just shy of $35 million, was distributed to his mother, as directed in an 1811 will. The will was administered by two of Clark's trusted business partners, Beverly Chu and Richard Ralph. When Myra learned of her biological parents around 1830, her husband, William, helped her track down information about them. William was an attorney who learned from colleagues in New Orleans that Myra's father had been a very wealthy man at the time of his death, an inheritance that Myra was owed. In 1833, William and Myra arrived in New Orleans and set into motion a nearly six-decade legal battle over Daniel Clark's estate. Through legal research and Daniel Clark's letters, Myra learned Clark had made a new will in 1813 that Myra claimed designated her as Clark's legitimate daughter and heir to his fortune. In New Orleans, William and Myra met with several of her father's friends and learned they knew of his marriage to Zalim and revealed toward the end of his life, Clark had confided his regret over what happened to Myra and his intent to leave her a majority of his fortune. Those close friends of Clark's told Myra that Clark's business associates he named as executors of his 1811 will had destroyed the 1813 will. In 1834, Myra's husband, William Whitney, sued the executors of Daniel Clark's estate on behalf of his wife. William set the case in motion because at the time, women could not sue on their own. The executors, Richard Ralph and Beverly Chu, had become two of the top power brokers in New Orleans. They controlled most of the shipping and banking business in the city and carried a great deal of influence in the courts. If Myra won this case, they stood to lose the majority of their property and fortune. This included an 1821 sale of a block of property in New Orleans' business district that had been auctioned to a wealthy businessman who then sold the block over a decade later to the city of New Orleans. The lawsuit claimed Myra was the legal heir to the fortune, according to the 1813 will. If true, that meant any sale of her father's holdings based on the 1811 will were fraudulent. Ultimately, the 1834 lawsuit challenged Clark's estate based on the 1811 will being invalid, the disappearance or destruction of the 1813 will, and the suit cited Louisiana law, which prevented a father from disinheriting his legitimate child. Under Louisiana law, any legitimate child was entitled to four-fifths of an estate. This legal battle was front-page news in New Orleans and within years made headlines nationwide with people split over their opinion of Myra. Admittedly, the 1813 will could not be presented as proof and Daniel Clark never publicly acknowledged his marriage to Zalim and the legitimacy of their child. The case was further complicated because the marriage happened when the Spanish ruled Louisiana. 
1811 will was written when Louisiana was still a territory, and the second will, if proven to exist, had been written after Louisiana became a state in 1812. A lot of powerful people were motivated to fight this case in any way they could, including two Louisiana Supreme Court justices who had purchased property from Chu and Ralph after the 1811 will was probated in New Orleans. William Whitney's lawsuit on Myra's behalf was contested and tied up in legal delays for decades because the title to a lot of real estate in the city would be called into question by powerful and wealthy businessmen. If the Whitney's won, it would mean anyone who purchased real estate they believed was Chu and Ralph's to sell from the Clark estate could lose a lot, and in some cases, lose prime property in New Orleans, which would be a devastating blow for the parties involved. This included the city of New Orleans, which had purchased a block of Clark's land in the business district. Beverly Chu and Richard Ralph fought back against the Whitney's by suing William Whitney for libel. Ralph and Chu's powerful connections led to William Whitney being imprisoned in the parish prison for three weeks. In the years following his time in prison, Whitney was constantly ill. And three years later, in 1837, he died of yellow fever. Myra called out Chu and Ralph for sending her husband to prison where he had become ill saying his weak constitution in the years following his release ultimately led to his death. By 1839, Myra remarried and found in her new husband an ally who was willing to help her fight this legal battle. Myra's second husband was General Edmund Pendleton Gaines, a soldier in the U.S. Army who arrested former U.S. Vice President Aaron Burr in 1807. Gaines was a respected military man who served in the War of 1812, the Seminole Wars, and the Black Hawk War. Myra Clark Gaines had always been savvy with the press. She knew how to present her case to the public, and nearly a decade into her legal battle, she had become a celebrity. The country was fascinated by her and General Gaines. While lawyers continued their court battle in New Orleans, Myra and the general embarked on a lecture tour between 1840 and 1841. The tour was to rally support for Edmund Gaines' plan for national defense he wanted to present to the War Department. Crowds filled lecture halls to hear the couple speak, but the greater interest was in meeting the woman behind the great Gaines case. Myra won a major victory in 1843, thanks to the testimony of highly respected friends and colleagues of Daniel Clark, who knew about his wife and child. The court ruled Myra Clark Gaines was the legal heir of Daniel Clark. With a case tied up in appeals, Myra faced a personal and legal loss. In June 1849, Edmund Gaines died. Now twice widowed, Myra knew both of her husbands, supported her fight for her inheritance, and her lawyers pressed on. In 1850, Myra's biological mother, Zulim, was deposed in France and shared of her marriage to Daniel Clark, the birth of their daughter Myra, and Clark's promise to her that if she agreed to send Myra to live with Colonel Davis for a time, Clark would make a will 
and declare Myra to be his legitimate daughter and name her the heir to his immense estate. As Elim said in her deposition, she agreed to send her daughter away because Clark assured her that their daughter would be recognized as his legitimate heir. And she felt relief that her daughter's future was secure. She closed her deposition by saying, My sole object and hope in this world is that Myra may at last obtain that justice which has been so long withheld from her. She has endured every persecution from those very individuals whom her father had protected and cherished. In 1852, there was a setback for Myra when the court reversed their own decision from 1843 saying no evidence of legal marriage between Zulim and Clark existed, which meant Myra Clark Gaines could not be the heir to Daniel Clark's estate. Just before the Civil War, in 1861, the Supreme Court reversed the reversal of the original ruling and declared Myra Clark was Daniel Clark's heir. That decision was addressed again just after the war and upheld by the courts in 1867. At this time, newspapers carried headlines about Myra Clark Gaines and her fortune, making her the richest woman in America with nearly $35 million. But Myra's financial situation did not improve with a ruling that was tied up in appeals for years as she amassed large debts in legal fees. This case was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court 17 times, under several different names and appeals. But Myra would never know the final decision. On January 14, 1885, Louisiana newspapers announced the death of Mrs. Myra Clark Gaines at the age of 79. Her obituary told of the long court battle that was still working its way through the court system and noted the following of Myra's financial state at the time of her death Mrs. Gaines passed away without enjoying the fruits of her arduous labors. In fact, she died poor. General Gaines left a son by a previous marriage who was blind and for whom Mrs. Gaines provided out of her very slender means. The issue of her union with Mr. Whitney was a son who was also deceased, leaving three grandchildren and a daughter, Mrs. Christmas, now dead, whose children numbered three likewise. These six grandchildren are living, three being residents of Washington and three at school. Mrs. Gaines was kind-hearted and of a religious temperament, frequently asserting that when she became possessed of the wealth to which she laid claim, it would be devoted to the relief of the poor and needy. Myra never knew that wealth and would never know the final ruling in the case. Her heirs kept up the fight for the Clark inheritance, and a ruling was issued in 1891 with a settlement of just over $923,000. Once Myra's legal fees of $860,000 were paid, her heirs were left with around $63,000 from Daniel Clark's $35 million estate. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Myra Clark Gaines' historic case remains the longest-running civil litigation on record in the United States, 
Her celebrity status as the woman behind the Great Gaines case gave her a platform she never expected, but embraced on behalf of women of her generation. She was often featured in newspaper society columns where she addressed her legal battle, but always made the interviewer agree that in order to get the interview, she had to be allowed to speak to women's issues, which meant advocating for women's suffrage. Myra Clark Whitney Gaines was buried in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 in New Orleans. At her funeral, Reverend B.M. Palmer said this of Myra's determination and courage. Her power of will was absolutely amazing, and I think the great lesson she teaches us in death, as in life, is how much can be done when one's entire energies are concentrated on a single purpose, a purpose prosecuted in days of darkness and doubt. In the face of misfortune and defeat, her courage remained undaunted and her resolution unshaken. If you'd like to dive in and read more about Myra Clark Gaines, you can read Elizabeth Urban Alexander's Notorious Woman, The Celebrated Case of Myra Clark Gaines. I'll drop a link to the book in the show notes along with all the sources for this episode at southernmysteries.com. There you can also learn about becoming a patron of this independent podcast. When you join Southern Mysteries on Patreon, You can access member-exclusive content, including the show archive of the first three seasons. You can also join at a level where you access the archives of patron-exclusive podcasts and our new patron-exclusive monthly podcast, Audacious, tells of scandalous and shocking crimes in American history. You can choose one of two support levels on Patreon, and it's really easy to opt in and opt out. See for yourself and start listening to episodes you haven't heard before at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Thanks for your support of the show, whether it's on Patreon or by rating and reviewing the podcast or sharing about Southern Mysteries on your social channels. It all helps and it's appreciated. As always, thanks for listening to Southern Mysteries. Southern Mysteries.